Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. The great revelation occurs in chapter 34, verses uh, 6 and 7. These are practically verses every Christian ought to memorize. But we ought to recognize uh, how it is this revelation came about, the Lord revealing his essential nature to Moses. And it came about in answer to this question, as we see, beginning in verse 18. And he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first one, first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you. And let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stones like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we look to you again to illumine your word by the gracious ministry of your Holy Spirit, and we ask you that in opening this word to, to us, you might indeed, as you did for Moses, give us a glimpse of your glory, if only in passing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw in the prior episode, uh, which we broke off, we didn't complete. Moses is one uh, contending for the presence of God. He was enjoying it in the tent of meeting, but he was contending for it, uh, both for himself as he went forward and for the people. And that was precisely what uh, he found. We also saw in Moses, not surprisingly, as uh, a fitting type and picture of Christ in his intercession. But 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 as we saw, Moses would seek one thing and having gained it, he would press for more. And that's what he continues to do. And really, we left the high point of the episode for this sermon, breaking the whole episode in two. And so we're picking up where we left off. And again, Moses, having gained this point, does not stop there. He presses for more. And, and really, we see him uh, reaching as high as he can with this request. Matthew Henry the, 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 the success of his prayers emboldened him 
to go on still to seek God. The more he had, the more he asked. That's a line I especially like. The more he had, the more he asked. And he goes on, when we are in a good frame at the throne of grace, we should endeavor to, uh, to preserve and improve it. Here was a man, you could say, like Jacob before him, prevailing with God in prayer. And so he would go on seeking still more blessings from God. Uh, and we can break this episode into, uh, into five points. And the first is Moses' prayer. Verse 18, very simply, show me, please show me your glory. You notice the language, show me. That is, make it visible to me, Lord. Let me behold it. Moses was one who was privileged, uh, along with Israel, but even far beyond what Israel had enjoyed, with the sight of the glory of God. And yet when Moses had asked this, he was asking for more. Let me see it more than I have seen before. Oh, that I would behold not the glory of God in the cloud. But might I behold the essential glory of God. Let me see your glory. Let me tell you why this is an excellent prayer. Moses understands that there is nothing higher or better to be gained from God in prayer than an apprehension of his glory. Having experienced it many times over, it's the thing he seeks most from God. It is his highest aim or his chief aim, to use the language of the shorter catechism, to know and to behold and to be delighted again and again and more and more by the glory of God. It would seem that Moses was here trying uh, as it were, to get into heaven before the time. He realizes that the joy and the bliss of heaven is found in the unclouded view of God's glory. There in heaven the saints are ever gazing upon it and ever delighting in it. And Moses upon the mountain, having gained so much and having seen so much, would, it would seem, enjoy this too for himself. And so that's why it's an excellent prayer, but I would counter uh, that somewhat and tell you that there was also a weakness in this prayer. Moses asks too much. He forgets the dispensation in which he lives. And so, as I say, he asks too much. He forgets uh, as he's carried away in his prayer that the saints here are called to live by faith and not by sight. And so you notice, even though he fixates on the glory, which is right. In the word show me, we detect a weakness or a defect in his, in his faith. In some measure, Moses seeks to lay down the office of faith and he would take up the office of sight. And really we can say, or at least I would say, who can fault him? Who would not do this if he could? In the immediate presence of God. Who among us would not lay down the office of faith and take up the office of sight, even for a brief moment, if we could. And so I would say, even though I'm defending him, there is some measure of folly and human weakness seen in all of our desires to look upon God, even though he tells us we cannot, not in this life. As well as a folly I might add, in ignoring his own frailty. For the office of faith is accommodated to the present dispensation, not merely because God would have it that way, 
but because it is impossible in our human frailty and weakness to behold the divine glory. You can imagine how easily your eyes would be burned up by gazing at the sun for too long. It's it's a sight too bright to bear. Do you think that in your present weakness and frailty that you could bear an immediate sight of God? The answer is you cannot. And so God accommodates to our weakness. But on the whole, I'm still encouraged by this prayer. It's one of the most excellent prayers I find in Scripture. Again, please, Lord, show me your glory. I still remember uh, one of the most memorable sermons that I've ever listened to by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've read many of his sermons. That ought to be evident. Uh, but from time to time, I've listened to some of his sermons. And he preached a sermon on just on that verse, verse 18, show me your glory. It made a, a wonderful impression upon me. It, I suddenly realized that this is one of the great prayers in Scripture. J.I. Packer as well, uh, focusing not so much on the prayer, but in his book, Knowing God, on the answer to the prayer and the revelation that we have in Exodus 34 together with Exodus 3, pointing to these as two of the great revelations of God, whereby the saints are enabled to know God. And so I would say that this prayer of verse 18 is a prayer worthy of emulation. It's a prayer worthy of the saints today. The kind of thing that we ought to be praying and seeking in prayer. And so let me ask you this. Do you share Moses' burning desire to behold the divine glory? In other words, do you pray like this? We understand as Reformed Christians that the chief end of man, shorter catechism number one, is to glorify and to enjoy God forever. We understand that's our office. That is our chief and highest aim. And the end of our living. But if that is our chief and our highest end. Then surely our prayers ought to reflect it. And we ought to be those who are concerned to be acquainted with that glory. Not always aiming at it as a kind of uh, theoretical uh, unknown. But as something about which we are deeply familiar and acquainted with. Because we know God. Insofar as I can tell, this is the chief end of Christian worship. It's the great thing that we are seeking. Again, not just to glorify God, but to be acquainted with his glory. And to find him and to know him in his glory. That we would have a sense together of God's majesty and of his greatness as we meet together in his presence. It's often said today, and and understandably and rightly, that uh, so much of worship, I hope it isn't said of our worship, but certainly much that passes for worship today, that it's too man-centered. You hear that about the preaching sometimes too. Well, I think I can tell you why. And it's because simply Christians do not pray like this, and this isn't what what they're seeking. They stop seeking the glory of God. Well, you ask me what it is. What is the glory of God? And I'm going to tell you because God answers that. In the second place, his response. In verses 19 through 23, it's important to notice uh, in God's response that it's clear that he wants to do what Moses asks. But you notice how he proposes to do so. He says that he will make all his goodness to pass before him. And do you notice the subtle change? There are two subtle changes. One is that God's glory is seen in his goodness. There is the beginning of the answer to the question, what is the glory of God? Well, it is seen in his goodness. 
And that is something God will be at pains to define for us. But also that God says that he will make it to pass by. He will hold he will hide Moses in the cleft of the rock. For to gaze, as we know, and as I said, upon the divine majesty would be a sight too great for even the eyes of Moses to bear. And so God accommodates his answer and he adjusts it to the present dispensation. But it's clear he has a desire to answer it. Again, we still see Moses as the man who's prevailing with God in prayer. God says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. What we see here, as I've been saying here, clarified, God reaffirms the priority of faith in the present dispensation. It is not so much what Moses will see, but what he will hear that will confirm to him and enlighten him with the glory of God. If Moses would behold the glory of God, or if you would behold the glory of God, it would be as you hear the voice of God declaring his own essential character as the Lord. The Lord telling you who he is and what he is like. Kyle and Dillich, with the passing by of the glory of God and with the revelation of the name of Jehovah through the medium of the word in which God discloses his inmost being and so to speak, the whole, his whole heart to faith. And the quote goes on, but I like how he puts it. God, through the medium of the word, is disclosing his character and even his inmost being and heart to faith. To faith. And so here again, as in the incident of the burning bush in chapter 3, the crucial issue is upon the glory of God, which man is meant to apprehend by faith. That's what's being revealed to Moses all along throughout the book of Exodus, which is why this was such a fitting prayer, show me your glory. Moses understood this was the crucial issue. Together with our reformed fathers, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And the glory was found, God says, in the revelation of the name. In other words, in the word of God revealed to him in his very hearing. As faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so God is telling Moses all along and here more than ever what it was the name, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, really means. Again, God Disclosing to man his true character and his heart. His inmost being as Kyle and Dillich say. And this is what man ought to be most concerned to know. What God is really like. Not simply if there is a God. But what he is like. Is he a God like the pagan deities? One uh, will come to this. And when we consider the issues of sacrifice and propitiation. Is he a volatile deity whose wrath uh, has, to be, uh, has to be propitiated perhaps by sacrifices? Then again, perhaps not. That's the pagan deity. There's a volatility. Or is he a god on the other side? The modern god. Which suggests that he's all love and no wrath. You see, one side emphasizes too much the wrath. The other side says there is no wrath, only love. But here God is saying not simply that he exists, I am, but he tells us what he is like. And do you realize that these other versions, there's something about them that give themselves away as heresy right away. It's that they take all of the glory out of God. But that is not the God you find in scripture. You always find in scripture a God who is glorious to the uttermost. 
And so God is not simply saying, here is what I am like in contrast to the false versions. But he's saying, herein behold my glory. And when we see what he is saying, then he really does appear to be glorious as the true and the only God. Going on with what he says, we see the essential nature of his goodness, that he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he will show compassion to whom he will show compassion. And so the emphasis becomes with respect to his goodness and his glory, his grace and compassion to sinners. This is the thing about God's heart that he wants Moses most to know, whereby his glory will appear in the presence and in the midst of sinners. And to think that the setting in which this occurs was in the aftermath of of Israel's worst sin to date, the incident of the golden calf. And yet here God is saying, so I'm calling you to go on and to lead these people on. I want you to recognize that I am indeed a gracious and a compassionate God. I want you to know, God is saying, that I am not all wrath. That I desire to be merciful and gracious to whom I would be merciful and gracious. Here is a God who is supremely good and kind. And we must not ever underestimate the extent to which he is willing to forgive and to pardon, even in the aftermath of the worst imaginable sins. But even then, you notice how God reveals it to Moses. We must realize that it is God who is speaking, and it is God with whom we are dealing. And it is God who is revealing his grace and his compassion. And so do you recognize he does not simply say that I am compassionate, I am gracious. But he underscores and underlines his sovereignty because it is the grace and the compassion of God we are considering here. And that is being revealed to us. Remember that he is always sovereign in all of his actions, for that is what it means for him to be the Lord, a God who is absolutely free and sovereign. That's what the word the Lord or Yahweh means His absolute freedom, his absolute sovereignty. And so in underlining his grace, his love, his mercy, his compassion, he presents it in a way that underscores his own godhood and his own glory. His grace and his compassion, the Lord is saying, are at his disposal, not ours. And the glory of his goodness is seen as always in that God is God and we are not. If he would exercise these things for our good, it is only... And ever because he wants to. And not because we deserve it. But we notice lastly before we come to chapter 34. That there are these words of warning at the end. Whereby God indicates to Moses that he is not fit to behold the glory of God in the way he had hoped. But that God uh, would hide him in the cleft of of the rock. And make his glory to pass by. And he would only behold uh, the backside of the Lord. But even though the answer is accommodated, we realize that his prayer is not fully thwarted. God is prepared to answer the question. In other words, the Lord is prepared to show Moses his glory. And so that brings us to chapter 34. And we might wish to rush to this meeting between Moses and the Lord, but we notice that something happens first, which needs to be emphasized as part of the total picture here. The covenant that's being renewed, the glory that's being revealed. And so we see in verses 
uh, let's see, verses 1 through 4, that the Lord uh, gives to Moses instructions concerning the renewal of the covenant. And what he emphasizes is that the tablets must be uh, rewritten. The tablets of the law, the two tablets. Moses had thrown them upon the ground and even now they lay destroyed at the foot of the mountain. And, and thereby indicating to Israel the covenant that she broke by her disobedience. But the Lord is now indicating, you see, his mercy and his goodness by, by reinstituting, or even we might say rewriting the covenant and rewriting the law. Only, interestingly, and I, I confess, uh, I don't know what to make of this. I won't try even to preach this point. I only pointed out to you that this time the Lord says, I want you to bring the rocks or the tablets to me. That is entirely different from the prior incident. The Lord, but Moses does that and the Lord, the Lord rewrites the law upon those tablets which he brings. The law then seemed to be the foundation of the covenant. But again, do not isolate this. See, this is part of the bigger picture. The regiving of the law was yet another instance of his goodness to Israel and thus of his glory. Wherein did these things appear? Well, they appeared in the giving of the law. Israel had forfeited this privilege as the tablets lay broken at the bottom of the mountain, yet God would renew his love to them again by giving them his law anew. We also see how, as before, the giving of the law was founded upon and given with this preface. You notice this in the giving of the Ten Commandments the first time in Exodus chapter 20. He doesn't begin with the law, but he begins with himself. The Lord, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He declares his name Uh, in which Israel has found his mercy. And then he gives the law. And it really is exactly the same thing here. It is only as the Lord reveals himself as the Lord, full of mercy, as Israel's Savior, that he gives the law. And that ever remains for us the structure of the covenant of grace. God reveals himself as the Lord, as the Savior, and calls us to obey him. If the law of God is the foundation of the old covenant... God's love and mercy are the foundation of the law. And that is what God is especially concerned to express here. And what he does in the meeting the next day is a fourth point. We find it in verses 5 through 7. When Moses ascends the mountain to meet with the Lord, presenting the tablets, but also for the Lord to reveal his glory. Let me read. Verses 5 and 6, the Lord, Moses having ascended the mountain, we read, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And just leaving it there. You remember the Lord said that he would make all of his goodness to pass before Moses. And here, uh, that is precisely what the Lord is doing. And his goodness, his glory is seen in his goodness, but his goodness is seen in his mercy. And here the Lord heaps up words upon words as though to make it seem, as indeed it does, to abound to Moses and to the people of God. The Lord is merciful. That's what he says first. That is to say, Uh, Or the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. He connects mercy with his name, which is to say with his own character and his own being. 
You cannot think of what it means for the Lord God to be who he is in his essential nature. That is, as the Lord, without considering his mercy. It is essential to who he is. Which means that the Lord is inclined to to spare. He's inclined to pardon. It means, as an expression of his goodness, that he does not delight in the downfall of the sinner, but he wishes rather that he would be spared. Another word for this, as we saw earlier, is compassion. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's another word for mercy. Beyond that, the Lord is gracious. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious which speaks, as we have seen even this morning, of the freeness of his love and mercy and goodness. When we think of what it is that inclines God to pardon and to show mercy, it is nothing that is found in the sinner. He finds only reason to punish and to condemn. The Lord finds the reason solely in himself. His own inclination to pardon and to forgive. He finds it only in his goodwill, as Matthew Henry says. Beyond that, he is long-suffering. That is, he suffers long with sin and the sinner. He delays his justice, if only that the sinner might repent and be spared. He does not judge all at once, though he might. Why else would he suffer long with the sinner, if not for this, in order to exercise his mercy? He is abounding in goodness and truth. He keeps mercy for thousands. Not a few, but for many. Not just for Israel, but for all. There is no lack of mercy in God. To quote Matthew Henry again, the springs of grace are always full and always flowing. They never dry up. Lastly, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God is saying, view sin from any vantage point you like, as iniquity, as transgression, as sin. View sin at its worst, Romans chapters 1 through 3. God can still pardon it. He still desires to pardon it. His nature is so great that sin presents no obstacle to his forgiveness. And so it is not inevitable that the sinner should perish. No, not with a God like this. It is still possible that the sinner might be pardoned and that he might be spared and that he might be brought again into a saving covenant relationship with God. That's what God is indicating to Moses. Now, we might be inclined to stop there. And I think a great deal of modern Christianity and modern preaching would. But they're only truncating, easy for me to say, truncating the glory of God. But that's something God would never do, and so let us never do it. You see, he isn't finished when he says all this. Do you see how merciful, how gracious, how loving I am? Oh, but listen to this. I will by no means clear the guilty, and I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, for all that God has said about his mercy about his goodness and his love to the sinner. Let none say that he is not just. Let none say that he simply overlooks sin, and that's how he pardons it. Let not the sinner, in other words, God is saying, emboldened by this message to sin. 
The truth is, for all God's desire to pardon the sinner, to show and express his mercy and his love and his compassion, he is equally determined to punish it. Let me underline that. In fact, let me say it again. He is equally determined to punish it. That is sin. You see, God is not. And how could he be clearer than he is here? He is not someone who is lenient to the sinner. That isn't how he expresses or exercises his mercy. He's not like we parents sometimes are. When we, says, if you, when we say, if you do this, I'm going to punish you. And then they do it. And we say, okay, well, next time. That's not mercy. That's leniency. It's also folly, by the way. But it's certainly not justice. God isn't lenient toward the sinner. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't turn the other way. Do you realize this is not what God is like? Nor is this how he proposes to be merciful by ignoring sin. Again, that is how man pretends to be merciful, but not God. His glory appears in that he hates sin and that he is determined to punish it and that he will punish it. He will by no means, he says, leave the sin and the sinner unpunished. Now, let me ask you this. How can both be true? That's the great question, isn't it? I remember uh, Dave asking the question in Sunday school on justification. How can he be both? And in one sense, let me just say, as we are considering the glory of God, that this comes to us, as God's revelation often does, as a total mystery. In some sense, there is no need to resolve it. There is only need, or there is need only, I mean, to believe it and to accept it as true. So much of the being and the character of God comes to us as an incomprehensible mystery, for he is the Lord and we are not. How could we ever fully grasp the glory of his being? How can we ever fully grasp that God can be both? Both just and merciful to the sinner. And certainly we do not propose a solution. I found, I found this today, or not today, excuse me, this week. So earlier I, I emphasized that he is both equally but sometimes you hear people saying, well, you know, he's one more than the other. They minimize one at the, the expense of the other. You know, God is really more mercy than he is justice. And so we minimize the glory of God by reducing him to one or the other. Or by eliminating the element of mystery. Well, I don't think that will do. Again, the glory of God appears that he is both. He is both fully and equally. And it's clear that the Lord is underlining both. He is not minimizing either. In the strongest possible language, he indicates, I want to pardon. I want to forgive. It's my desire. It's my nature. And indeed, he's determined to do it. On the other hand, I will by no means clear the guilty. Does that sound like he's minimizing one at the expense of the other? Or is he saying, look, I want you to see both things about me. I want you to appreciate both of them fully. But there is a clue. And indeed, there's more than a clue. In, in seeking to reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable truths, at least from the human viewpoint. Nowhere do we get a better glimpse of God's merciful justice. His desire to pardon matched only by his determination to punish sin. And here again, I'm disagreeing with those who suggest that one is greater than the other. 
Nowhere do we get a, get a better view of this than at the cross. And here I'm, I'm only beginning to anticipate the argument of Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, both. His justice and his mercy. Amazing to think. Not only that God could be both. But of course he must be. But to think that he might exercise both. In the salvation of the sinner. Not one at the expense of the other. But both fully together. Operating in tandem. For my salvation. That is precisely how Paul presents the gospel. And that is precisely what we find at the cross of Christ. There we see a display of righteousness. That magnifies his justice and his holy determination to punish every transgression. That's what Paul says. He's demonstrating his essential righteousness. Verse 25. While at the same time and by the same exact means. His abounding goodness, mercy and love. His eternal and everlasting desire and will to pardon. Here is a mercy that appears even as sin is punished and punished to the uttermost, even to the death, uh, even the death of Christ, the son of God on the cross, a just mercy. So that at the cross, both truths are wonderfully expressed together and at once. And, And you see, realizing this, we say only God could do this. Only God could devise such a way of pardoning the sinner by exercising his justice. To express both so perfectly and so fully. Revealing to us his desire to pardon and his determination to punish. And both in all their wonder and love and majesty and terribleness. Never did God appear so uh, terribly full of wrath and vengeance against the sinner than at the cross. And yet at the same time, never did he seem so loving and merciful and abounding in grace. And so there at Calvary, we behold the glory of God as he revealed it here to Moses, the full truth expressed all at once. And we can say the Lord is one who is like this. Who can deny it now that Christ, his son, has died? And do you see why the thing which we most glory in as Christians and in Christian preaching because it is the thing that most reveals the glory of God is the cross of Christ. I glory in the cross, Paul says. Do you realize what he's saying? Well, I won't preach my next sermon from Romans anymore. We'll leave it at that. But surely we must see a glorious anticipation here in the Old Covenant, an explanation of the gospel in these words, the justice and the grace of God. Which, taken together, not seen uh, uh, separated or one at the expense of the other, but taken together fully, make the glory of God appear all the more in the gospel, supposing that we have grasped these truths. We come to the cross and we find not a stumbling stone or an enigma, but what we find, beloved, is the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. And what God is revealing to us there is his righteousness and his love in action. 
And so I would say here is reason to rejoice and to worship and to pray. And that's exactly what we find Moses doing is the fifth and final point. In verses 8 and 9, we find Moses' worship and his prayer. Verse 8, he made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And then he prayed to the Lord, verse 9, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Do so you notice how Moses just keeps praying? He never stops praying. He never stops seeking more from God. The more he gets, the more he seeks. His worship and his prayer. And let me say to you, if God's revelation of these things does not make you make haste to bow down and to worship and to pray like this, well then, I wonder what can. And I ask you, what is it that you are seeking from God, if not this? What is it that you wish to know about him, if not his glory and the glory of his goodness in particular? Do you not find here in these words all the sinner ever needed, a mercy which resides in God himself, not one which man must achieve or earn, but one which God proposes to offer at his own discretion and in his own sovereignty to the sinner? Yes, we ought to bow down and to worship like Moses. And you see, we also ought to pray for the mercy which is promised and to ask that God might go with us wherever he is leading. Oh, Lord, would you not go among us and pardon iniquity for you are a God who delights to do so. Such is your very nature. Will you not grant to us what you are and let us experience the fullness of your goodness? In other words, what Moses is praying here in verse nine is simply what he had already prayed. Show me your glory. And that is, I say again, a prayer which befits the saints in every age. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word in praise by standing together and singing uh, once again a cappella, hymn number 69.